0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Jewish Studies channel. I'm your host, Dora Rusi, Executive Director of Unity Through Diversity Institute, where we explore the future of our heritage. Please see our activities through unitytdiversity.com. That's unity, the letter T, diversity.com. Today, we're really delighted to speak with Uri Kaufman. He will be speaking about his book, Eighteen Days in October. The Yom Kippur War and How It Created the Modern Middle East, published through St. Martin's Press in 2023. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Instead of me introducing you, I always like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us the important things that you think people should know before we get into the book.
0: Uh, My name is Uri Kaufman. I wrote a book called 18 Days in October. It is the first history of the Yom Kippur War to come out in almost 20 years uh, because the last book written was actually, it came out in 04, but it was probably written, you know, 2000 to 2001. The author, a guy named Abraham Robinovich, very good reporter for the Jerusalem post did not have the benefit of most of the classified material that has since emerged. Most of the really good stuff has come out only in the last 10 years. Uh, so this is reaching an English speaking audience for the first time. And it allowed me to tell the story and literally from the standpoint of the decision makers. You're literally sitting in the, the decision room. You're sitting in the White House, West Wing. You're hearing the debate as it's going on. And it's really created just an unbelievable story. Uh, if I'd have brought this to my editor as a novel, she'd have just kicked me down the stairs. Nobody would believe that this could happen. It's really got it all. It's got intrigue, you know, the right-hand man to Anwar Sadat selling secrets to the Israelis. It's got the crazy swashbuckling general, Ariel Sharon, who never listens to orders. Atop it all, you've got this unbelievable woman, Golda Meir, the first woman in the history of the world to rise, to become a head of state without being related by blood or marriage to any male king or politician. Uh, You can't make this stuff up. Uh, And it just creates a story that reads like a novel. Uh, So it was a lot of fun to do. It took me 20 years. It's a bear of a topic to research. You have to speak a lot of foreign languages, obviously Hebrew and Arabic, Russian and English, and even German, because Syria, it's not quite North Korea, but it's pretty darn close to it. It's a black hole. No one knows what's going on there. There was an American diplomat who once said there aren't more than three or four people in Syria at any given time that know what's going on. The one source... Sources on Syria are really, really hard to come by, but one source is uh, the East German Stasi had a really good presence in Syria at the time. Uh, and God bless the Germans, they are the best record keepers. It doesn't matter if it's agricultural statistics or the Holocaust, they write everything down. So I hired a German speaking uh, researcher to go through the Stasi record. So... It's a really good uh, account, I think, I hope, uh, painting the picture from all the different sides. So I have to tell you, I totally agree. It was it really drew me in. I wasn't
1: sure I would be because it's very military, actually. You actually describe a lot of the military there. And so it's really just the story that you get drawn into. And you, you timed it to come out 50 years past um, the war, and yet... <laughs> We find ourselves in another situation We we will get to soon. I don't want to talk about it yet, but 50 years later, um, we're in somewhat of a parallel situation, which uh, a little upset me as I was reading it. But first, let's talk about the book for a few minutes at least. <laughs> so you start the book with the six day war, um, even though the war is about the, 70, the, in the book about the 73 war. Um, and then the war of attrition. And so let, let's talk about at least setting the stage a little bit of what was going on at that time. Maybe, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Podgomi. Is that how you pronounce it? His visit to Egypt? Pagoni, sorry. Sure. And visit to Egypt so we can understand some of the players, what's going on at the time before the outbreak of 73,
0: of Kipper. Yeah, the war effectively started in 1967. The 67 War landed on the region like lightning on a sunny day. As late as February, nobody thought there was going to be a war in 1967. It shows you just how fragile peace is in the Middle East. Interestingly enough, there was a Czech astrologer in Prague in a newspaper who wrote that in June, he wrote this in December of 1966, that in June the Jews would reconquer Jerusalem. Everyone thought he was nuts, and he turned out to be a prophet. Prophecy uh, you know, Prophecies a lost art, but I don't know. This guy somehow right, looked into his crystal ball, but no one saw this coming. It was a shock of all shocks. Uh, now the war is over. The Israelis offered to trade land for peace, a coalition government, a national unity government, which had 108 out of 120 seats in the Knesset, an all-time record, never to be matched, I'm sure, voted unanimously, including Menachem Begin, to trade the entire Sinai Peninsula and the entire Golan Heights in return for a peace treaty. They were a little more coy with respect to Jerusalem and Judea Samaria. But they offered that. The uh, Arabs responded with the infamous three no's. No negotiation, no recognition, no peace. I want to interrupt for one moment. You said even Menachem Begin because of his political views,
1: you wouldn't expect it. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Menaka Megan was viewed as this war-mongering lunatic. He had written an infamous piece going back, like in the 1950s, saying, one day we're going to conquer Jordan. Also, um, you know, usually, I have to say, words matter. And when politicians say things, you really do need to take it at face value. But there are exceptions. So, for example, you know, when Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, take a really extreme example. People said, oh, well, he doesn't mean that. I mean, come on. Once you get into power, you know, you grow into the job, you have to act responsibly. No, no, it doesn't work that way. Whatever else, also one thinks of Donald Trump. He said things before, and then he did follow through. You know, a lot of people said also, well, once he gets into power, it's going to be different. It really wasn't. Um, Menachem Begin is that exception where he said one thing for years and years, but then When he got into power, he turned into this incredibly responsible guy. Of course, he did ultimately trade the whole Sinai Peninsula for peace. He did do the one thing he swore he'd never do. He dismantled settlements um, in uh, Levi Eshkol's government. He voted for trading land for peace. So, you know, everybody wanted to trade land for peace except for the Arabs. It's kind of the same way now uh, to this day. Israel has always offered to trade land for peace. It's just there's never been any buy-in on the other side. So the Arabs then sat down to try to prepare for war. Uh, Luckily for the Egyptians, Anwar Sadat took over for Nasser. Nasser died of a heart attack in September of 1970. People greeted Sadat with unvarnished contempt. He was viewed as a buffoon. Uh, In fact, Henry Kissinger was heard on tape calling him a buffoon. Uh, The American who represented America's interests at the Nasser funeral was Elliot Richardson. He came home and said, this guy, Sadat, is a joke. He won't last more than six weeks. Turned out he was no buffoon. He was a, a really brilliant visionary leader. And for the first time, he sat down and he planned out a really well-thought-out war plan. And so, and it continued, right? And, sure. and- So for the first time, they, you know, a good war plan takes a sober assessment of the strengths and weaknesses of yourself and the strengths and weaknesses of the other side you set war goals. You don't just go into war and say, well, let's see what happens. You set legitimate, realistic war goals, and then you come up with tactics to try to realize them. And what Sadat said was, look, or his general, he had a general named Saad Shazli, probably the best general the Israelis ever faced. And he said, in war, the main thing is making sure the main thing stays the main thing. The main thing for the Arabs was the Israeli Air Force. Then, as now, The Israeli Air Force is the great equalizer that allows, well, what was in those days a nation of only 3 million people, barely more than Brooklyn, New York, to hold off combined Arab populations of, depending on how many you count, over 80 million. The Israeli Air Force just wiped out everything in its path. Shazli said, that's what we've got to deal with. We've got to figure out a solution to the Israeli Air Force. So what they did was the Egyptians got surface-to-air missiles from the Russians those surface-to-air missiles devastated the American Air Force in Vietnam. It was a surface-to-air missile, a SAM, that shot down John McCain, for example. Um, So the Egyptians got one of the tightest air defense systems in the world. In fact, the Syrians had literally the tightest air defense system on the planet, even more so than Moscow or Hanoi. They just filled that short, that little area between the Golan Heights and Damascus with surface-to-air missiles. The catch was that the surface-to-air missiles had a very limited range. They could only cover an area into the Sinai Peninsula of about six miles. So Saad Chosley said, forget about just conquering the Sinai, Normandy style. We're going to cross the canal. We're going to advance six miles and we're going to just stop cold in the desert. From there, we'll wage a war of attrition and then Israel will have to give in. It was an absolutely brilliant plan. Now, part of it was you got to get over the Suez Canal. And crossing the body of water is the hardest thing to do in the tracts of the military arts. In World War II, the Soviet Union gave out a quarter of their highest award. It's called Hero of the Soviet Union. A quarter of those medals went just for the battle to cross the Dnieper River, what we know today is the Dnipro, in Ukraine. Uh, and think about it. you got to paddle across. The men can only go with the weapons they can carry, so small weapons. The guys on the other side are going to have tanks and artillery and planes, but all they have are things they can carry. Uh, it's very, very difficult to do. you got to lay a bridge. you got to lay that bridge while they're shooting at you. So um, it's obviously very difficult, and what it depends on is the element of surprise. What the Egyptians did not know was that at that time, the number two in Egypt, the chief of staff to Anwar Sadat himself, a man named Ashraf Marwan, was selling secrets to the Israelis. Uh, In 1969, he walked in, at least according to published reports, he walked into the Israeli embassy in London and said that in return for money, a lot of money, he would sell secrets to the Israelis. According to published reports, adjusted for inflation, the Israelis paid Ashraf Marwan $25 million. To put that into perspective, uh, the highest paid spy in American history that we know of is Aldrich Ames. He only received five million dollars from the Soviets. I, uh, yeah, I think it was from the Soviets. Uh, he is now serving life without parole in jail. By the way, espionage is not a well-paying industry. I got to tell you, For, you know, take a lot more than five million dollars—to get me to do that. But anyway, it um, gives you an idea of just how much money the Israelis gave to um, this guy Ashraf Marwan. He gave them a mountain of information. It was described as once-in-a-history material. But the most important thing he gave them was something that took on a life of its own and it even was given its own name. It became known as the Concepcia. The conceptia or the concept was a core assumption and it said Egypt will not go to war until it can contend with the Israeli Air Force and it will not be able to contend with the Israeli Air Force until it gets advanced fighter jets from the Soviets, the MiG-23 and the MiG-25. So what year is this? This is, ah, so if this is 1971, 72, I was about to say, since the jets were not scheduled for delivery until 1974, and since it took about a year to train pilots to fly them, the Israelis figured, based on this concepcia fed to them by Ashraf Marwan, that there was no way that could possibly be a war in 1973. And that's what led them into disaster.
1: Except that in 1973, a Newsweek reporter goes into Cairo and says, war is inevitable.
0: Right, I I got to interview a guy named Arnold de Boargrav, fascinating guy. Uh, he was actually was the grandson of one of the major uh, British generals of World War I. Real uh, colorful fellow, very nice guy. Uh, he died quite a while ago, uh, I think almost twenty years ago. And he went to Cairo and he interviewed Anwar Sadat. And Sadat, I mean Sadat, was tossing out these these fiery statements all the time. He said 1972 was going to be the year of decision. Uh, and then 1972 came and went, and people were laughing at him. They said the only thing he knew how to do, Anwar Sadat, was extend time and extend the year. Ha ha ha. 1972 extended it to 73, and they thought 74 and 75. Dubogrov predicted war within six months, and he got it right by a day. He nailed it. I guess like that Czech astrologer. Um, but nobody really in Israel took any of this seriously. And I have to understand another thing. What the Egyptians did was uh, to engage in a surprise attack, they learned a very important tactical lesson from the Soviets. The Soviets pioneered this method of going right to the border and holding military exercises and then sending the troops home, demobilizing, and then going back to the border, having exercises and doing it again and then sending them home. You do it again and again and again. And then in 1968, they said, okay, attack. And that's how they attacked Czechoslovakia in the Prague Spring and they took it completely by surprise. And Western intelligence agencies said, look, it's impossible to predict this because only a handful of people at the very top in the Soviet Union knew what the intentions were. And uh, you know the men in the field had no idea. And once the capability is there, it's just a question of making the decision to go into war. And Egypt did the same thing. They sent their army right up to the Suez Canal, and they had military exercises. And then they demobilized. And they did it again and again and again. They did it 22 times between January 1, 1973 and October 1, 1973. On the 23rd time, they said, okay, now attack. And of the 8,000 POWs, the Egyptian POWs that Israel captured in the war, only one knew about the attack on October the 3rd. And practically everybody only found out about it on the morning of the actual attack. So between the two... Um, they figured it out. Now, Ashraf Marwan did ultimately warn the Israelis, but he didn't warn them until the night before. He only gave them about 10 or 11 hours of warning. Now, 10 or 11 hours of warning in the world of espionage is incredible. America didn't know about Pearl Harbor until the first bombs landed. Germany didn't know about Normandy until the first bombs landed. And you could go on and on and on. You know, Korea, even in modern times, uh, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, no one knew until the tanks rolled over the border. So 10 or 11 hours of warning is is actually pretty good. But it begs the question, why did Ashraf Marwan wait till the last minute? And this has fueled some conspiracy theories that maybe he was a double agent. Maybe the Egyptians sent him to fool the Israelis. But that those theories are actually pretty thin because obviously he didn't have to warn them at all, or he could have lied to them. Also, Ashraf Marwan met a very bad end. Uh, an Israeli general leaked his identity to the press. It was absolutely shocking that somebody did that. He should have gone to jail, but he didn't. But it was leaked. Ultimately, Ashraf Marwan died in, uh, I guess what i be termed, assisted suicide. Someone chucked him off the balcony of his London apartment. It is almost certain that the perpetrator were the Egyptians. Uh, the Israelis said they had absolutely nothing to do with it. It's very credible. There's no way Israel would just up and kill somebody on British soil. Um, there are some wacko theories that maybe it was a business deal gone bad, but, you know, businessmen don't go killing each other. That's just, I mean, then the movies they do, but not in real life. So uh, it was almost certainly the Egyptians. But then that raises the question, if he was a legitimate spy for Israel, why did he wait till the last minute? So to answer that question, an Israeli master spy named Rafi Etad once said, you must always remember there are no double agents, there are only triple agents. There's the nation they serve, the nation they betray, and then there's that highest loyalty of all, and that's to themselves. And what he meant by that was, look, Ashraf Marwan was in it for the money, but he was no labor Zionist. He was still an Egyptian. So his goal was to just pass along enough information to keep the money flowing. So he waited till the last minute, figuring, well, now he did what he was supposed to do, and the Israelis will continue to pay him. And 10 or 11 hours of warning wasn't going to be all that much with respect to the Sinai anyway. Although it did actually make all the difference in rescuing the Golan Heights. So now we have this surprise attack. The Israelis were caught completely off guard. And they're so, all fasting at this point. <laughs> they're all fasting, except then the commander said, okay, no, more fasting." In fact, Interestingly enough, the war also fell out during the uh, Islamic holy month of Ramadan when Muslims fast every day. And right on the morning, like in the early hours of October 6th, Israeli intelligence picked up that the order went down the line in Egypt. Okay, everybody break your fast. We're not going to be fasting because something's about, well, something might be happening. And Israeli intelligence looked at this and they said, wait a minute, what does that mean? And they wanted to try to go back. So some said, well, maybe it just means they're engaging in a more serious exercise and maybe it's going to be hot out so they don't want anyone to get harmed. Others said, no, this might mean they're going to war. And they wanted to go back in time to see what had happened previously. But a man, Israel's military intelligence arm, didn't have a computer. So they didn't have the ability to quickly see what had happened in the past. And people were like thumbing by hand through old files but they couldn't come up with the information quickly enough. So after the war, they went out and spent the money and got themselves a mainframe. But that's one <laughs> more
1: interesting. Okay, but let's talk about that breakdown because we shouldn't have that relied only on Marwan for this information. This information, as you write in the book, should have come from multiple sources. There should have been eavesdropping, listening. I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that. Just also in terms of
0: parallels today. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, this is the most interesting topic of all, And what it speaks to is how we human beings make decisions and how we have core assumptions. We have conceptias, And that is how we live our lives. Now, after the war, a man named Moshe alone, who went on to a glittering career, he became the head of military intelligence. He later went on to become chief of staff and defense minister. He said, okay, that's it. No more conceptias. We're going to look at everything with fresh eyes. And they found out almost immediately that that's just not possible to do. You can't run any organization without certain core assumptions. You can't even live your life without that. Let me give an example. You come to the corner, you want to cross the street. The light changes, the little green man comes up. So you figure it's okay, you step off the curb and then maybe someone runs you over, right? So someone might say, well, didn't you see the car? Didn't you see you could get run over? You said, well, well, yeah, but I had a conception. My concepia was the driver would stop for the red light the way everybody does. So that's just one extreme example. Another example is uh, the housing crisis of 2008. How did that happen? It happened because there were concepcias. There were certain core assumptions in the housing market of the United States. And I don't want to go into the weeds as to what it was, but there were certain core assumptions that had always been true. And then in 2008, they were not. Uh, that happened to a very big hedge fund called long-term capital management. It almost took down the world. Uh, in 1998. And they had like two Nobel Prize winning economists on staff, and they had all these elaborate formulas, again, that had always been true. In 1998, they weren't true, and they almost took down the world. Um, if you want and that's what brings us to the present. Uh, if you want an example, the one that most closely resembles it, it's not a perfect analogy, but the closest one is what happened in Munich in 1972 at the Olympics. How could they leave the Olympics just totally naked to attack? So the answer is, there was a conception. The concepcia was, who's going to up and attack the Olympics? Like, why would someone even do that? And if you had brought that to the German security officials before, that's what they would have said. They would say, why would someone even do that? You're only hurting yourself. You're presenting yourself as a barbarian, right? Um, What they didn't take into account is that when you're the Palestinians, there's no bad publicity. There's only good publicity. Because they have this coalition that will always support them no matter what. They have a built-in majority in the UN. And there's a lot of people in academia and media that just support them no matter what. So there's no bad publicity. There's only good publicity. So you launch this attack and now you're back on the world agenda. But it was that conceptia that led them to disaster. And that's what happened on October the 7th. There was a Okay, Under international law, when you are an occupier, you have to assume responsibility for the local population. Israel did this and did it admirably. In the years after 1967, Palestinian per capita GDP tripled. Uh, Their lives improved by every metric, whether it was literacy or infant mortality, you name it. However, in 2005, when Israel withdrew from Gaza, it had every right to say, we're done. That's it. We have no responsibility any longer. We don't have to supply you. However, Israel did not do that because Israel really is a light on two nations, Israel continued to supply Gaza even though they withdrew. Uh, And thus it became literally the only country in the history of the world to supply its enemies in time of war. Let me give some statistics. In 2022, Israel supplied Gaza with 5.7 billion gallons of water. Uh, Without that water, by the way, Gaza would die of thirst. Israel supplied Gaza with 67,000 trucks filled with supplies. Food, clothing, baby formula, you name it. They supplied Gaza with electricity, with fuel. Now Gaza and Palestinians have to pay for all this. So Israel gave license to 18,500 Palestinians from Gaza to work in Israel and take home a paycheck. It would be as if we in America allowed 18,000 Germans to work in America during World War II so we could send supplies to Berlin. Utterly unprecedented in world history. Nobody thought that Hamas would blow that up. Nobody thought they would cut off their only economic lifeline. Nobody thought they would commit an act of national suicide. And make no mistake about it, they have committed an act of national suicide. Those 18,500 Palestinians, they better get their resumes together because they're not coming back to work in Israel anytime soon. The food, the water, the electricity, done, finished. Palestinians in Gaza are going to become wards of the international community, living on humanitarian assistance, not unlike the Arabs living in Idlib in northwestern Syria. Nobody thought that Hamas would be this irresponsible. And I have to say, Hamas leaders are now giving interviews and they're saying things like, well, we don't want to live, we just want to kill. And look, two and a half million uh, Vietnamese had to die to defeat America and France and three and a half million Afghans had to die to defeat America and the Soviet Union. We don't care if we have to kill two or three or four million people. And indeed, they say this is our core strategy. Our strategy is we're strong and you're weak. We're strong. We can kill a million people and we can lose a million people. You guys can't do that because you're a bunch of weaklings. Now, these are their words, not mine. Um, and you can find all this on the internet if you if you poke around. Um, they also have a habit of saying that Jews are pigs and monkeys and they want to compete Hitler. And again, if you don't believe me, go on Google, type in Jews, pigs, and monkeys, and just scroll with your mouse and there you'll see it. So again, there was a core assumption in Israel that there was that they think the way we think that they want to raise their kids, they want to just live their lives as long as we supply them. Yeah, there will be rockets. They'll want to keep the conflict going on a low on a low flame, but they're not going to just go crazy and blow all that up. Um, and that's why also and the way also they had tactically achieved surprise was very similar to what Egypt did. They would send their men to the fence and they would train and train and train. And then they would send them home. And they'd send them back to the fence and train, and train and train and train and send them home. On the morning of October 7th, they said, okay, this time attack. And uh, according to the French newspaper La Figaro, and according to a high uh, Hamas official named Ali Barakah, only three people in Gaza knew that there was going to be a ta- an attack. It was Yat-Yat Sinwar, his brother Mohamed Sinwar, and another guy named Mohammed Def. Only those three knew that there was going to be an attack. Um, There's also been a lot of talk about how, well, Israelis relied too much on technology. I think that argument is very specious. All of Israel's technology has worked, and it's worked brilliantly. The technology did exactly what it was supposed to do. The fence that Israel built, it did its job. It was not built, however, for this type of attack. And again, it goes back to the idea of this conceptia. You plan for the attack that you think is possible, you do not plan for the attack that you consider to be impossible. And you could give countless examples of this. When 9-11 happened, America did not have a radar system to track the Pennsylvania plane, the one that ended up in the field in Pennsylvania. We did not have a radar that could track planes domestically. We had radar that could track our borders, all of our borders, which is a big border, but we didn't have any way to look at planes once they were inside the country. Because in gaming it out, nobody ever thought that there'd be this crazy scenario that 19 hijackers with box cutters would take over airplanes and fly them into buildings. We just didn't foresee that happening. So again, it it speaks to this idea of you only plan for what you think is possible and not for what you think is impossible. Which goes to us taking off our shoes
1: at this point in the airport, right? Because one guy- uh, had uh, matches in his shoes. So it's very much the same. Let's go back, though, again, we're going to go into these parallels, because there are sure. so many parallels, and it's scary. But um, let's try to get some of the car- ac- the players, rather, that also very much relate to both incidents from 50 years ago and from today. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Ariel Sharon. He's quite the character. So if you could tell us a little bit, and and obviously he plays into 2005 too, but let's start in 1973 or even
0: 67. Sure. So Ariel Sharon is one of the most colorful figures. He is a a very colorful country ever produced. (laughs) Uh, The people below him absolutely loved him. I interviewed a Lieutenant Colonel who was going off about a general he didn't like. And then in the middle, he just stopped and said, you know, he said, those things just didn't happen in Sharon's regiment. He was the ultimate general Uh, The people above him couldn't stand him. He never followed orders. He was always going off and doing whatever he wanted to do. Uh, And that's actually how he won the war in 73. The decisive battle of the 1973 war against Egypt was fought in a place called the Chinese Farm. It was neither Chinese nor a farm. It was actually a Japanese research institute for agriculture, but that meant that it was crisscrossed with irrigation ditches, so it was perfect for defense. The Israelis had to conquer it because it had a critical road through which the bridge to cross the canal had to travel. And I describe this in the book. The the bridge had to go over this road. It couldn't go any other way. And in the Chinese farm were 3,000 Egyptian troops dug in. And the Israelis simply couldn't dislodge them. Well, meanwhile, Ariel Sharon was on the other side of the canal in the heart of Egypt, west of the canal, with a small vanguard. And he said the only way he had orders, you sit, put, don't you move. He had already violated his orders twice. And he was told that if he did it a third time, there would be no more excuses. They would send him home. So what he did was he took a tiny force. He had a colonel give the order. He didn't even give the order directly because he didn't want it tied to him. And the orders were move north on the west bank of the Suez Canal. And as he put it, look for artillery spotters. So they went a mile, didn't see any. They said, keep going. Okay, two miles, no artillery spotters. Keep going. They kept going four miles, well beyond where any artillery spotter could possibly see the Israelis. So they knew something was afoot. They finally came to this village called Serafayim and they got this weird order. Okay, shoot the place up. Just go crazy. Now there was a very small forest, so, but orders are orders. So they went crazy. They shot the place up. It turned out there were two Egyptian brigades there. So they were outnumbered better than four to one. This one Israeli soldier named Asa Kadmoni went up on the roof of a building with nothing but a bazooka and a machine gun and a few grenades and by himself, he held off the Egyptians for four hours. This man also could barely feel his right hand because of a wound he had received in the 67 war. He had to lie to get back into combat. One Israeli reporter said that Asa Kadmoni is the greatest hero of all of Israel's wars, but by himself, he held off the Egyptians for four hours Uh, the Egyptians saw this and thought there was this massive invasion taking place on the west bank of the canal. So to straighten their lines, they withdrew from the east bank of the canal from the Chinese farm. And that's what won the war. So everyone at the top knew what had happened. Ariel Sharon with this crazy thing, violating orders, had just won the war, but they couldn't let him take the credit. So they made up a story that a paratroop force had actually opened up the Chinese farm, even though the paratroopers themselves, and I interviewed a lot of them, came back and said, we didn't, we didn't win the war at all. we didn't, All we did was walk into an ambush. So that's just one crazy story. There's many, many others. Um, he was the undisputed hero of the Yom Kippur War. That is the war that made him. When you fast forward to 2005, he's another one of these fellows that said one thing before he was in power, but then became a completely different person Once he got into power, and he would actually often say, "What you see from there, you don't see from here." It was a way of saying, "Look, you know, the the settlers never really trusted him. They knew that he was going to turn on them once he got into power." But in two thousand and five, he was the one who ordered disengagement from Gaza. So, you know, it, it took an Ariel Sharon to build the settlements. He built most of them, and it took an Ariel Sharon to take them all down. Again, it's it's almost impossible to convey to an American audience what an absolute shock it was that when Ariel Sharon became prime minister, he was the one to disengage from Gaza. I mean, the settlements were his issue. So, like, imagine, you know, I don't know, Bernie Sanders becoming president and saying, oh, forget about all this progressive nonsense, that I'm really a free market conservative guy. I mean, like something like that. That's or what or Menachem Begin saying to give up the Sinai. That's exactly right. That is a perfect analogy. Uh, Menachem Begin, his whole career, these inflammatory statements. But then the minute he got into power, just became this completely different person. And uh, you could actually say the same thing about Benjamin Netanyahu. On the one hand, yes, if you go through his like thirty or forty year record, you'll see statements about, oh, you know, we don't want the two state solution. But whenever he's in power. You know, he agreed to two withdrawals in the 1990s with Yasser Arafat. He supported disengagement. Or here's an example. He voted for disengagement from Gaza six different times. Because, you know, it's a whole legislative process. It got to go through the cabinet, through committee, through the Knesset. Bibi Netanyahu voted for it six times, but then resigned in protest when they were carrying it out because, oh, he didn't want to see, you know, disengagement. All right, you know, uh, you, you, you can't take the politics out of politics, I like to say. You know, these things are, are, you know, this is just what it is to be a politician. Sometimes you got to say one thing and do something else. It was Richard Nixon who famously said, watch what we do, not what we said. This is a fact, by the way, another fun fact that most people don't know. Who is the American president who brought the most civil rights enforcement actions? It's shocking, but it's Richard Nixon. John Mitchell's Justice Department brought the most civil rights actions, more than Johnson, more than Carter, more than anyone. And he said, and he was always talking about, you know, the South and he said, and then I think it was him, or it was either him or John Mitchell, said, watch what we do, not what we say. All right, again, you can't take the politics out of politics. So there's a lot of call for characters um, in Israel. Ariel Sharon is really only one of them. You got Moshe Dayan. Um, you know, He kind of lost his nerve uh, in the 73 war for a time. I don't think he had a mental collapse. A lot of people think he did. I thought the movie portrayed him extremely well. The movie Gold Up that just came out here in, but certainly atop it all, the most fascinating character has to be Golda Meir Hursai. And it's really, it's awfully sad because when Israelis are polled to rank their prime ministers, um, Ben-Gurion and Begin are usually battling it out at the top. Uh, Gold is always at the bottom, always comes in dead last. And there really is something wrong with that. Uh, Golda Meir was the hero of the Yom Kippur War. Uh, once the Agronaut Commission, which was the commission of inquiry after the war, found that she was not guilty of any dereliction of duty. Uh, the fact that there was a surprise attack was not her fault at all. By the way, this is going to uh, form the basis for Nyo's defense. When that commission of inquiry is impaneled, as surely it will be, I, no doubt he is going to say, hey, look, the Avernot Commission ruled that when the generals tell the prime minister everything's fine, nothing to worry about, the prime minister does not have some special obligation to, to grab a pair of binoculars, get in a Jeep, drive to the front, and draw their own conclusion. Um, so, Um, And then once the war broke out, uh, she had to make a string of absolutely brutal decisions, each more difficult than the other. And she got them all right, every single one. She ran the table. It's incredible. The woman was also made out of galvanized steel, because you get to the end of the war and Henry Kissinger was putting unbelievable pressure on Israel. By the way, whatever you see in the newspaper, this is the greatest crisis ever in the history of relations between America and Israel. Don't believe a word of it. The greatest crisis were the conversations between Henry Kissinger and Golda Meir. Now that this stuff has been declassified, it is unbelievable the things that Kissinger was saying to Golda Meir. He said things like, you rely too much on Jewish senators. And she said, "Well, who am I supposed to rely on? And at one point, uh, he said, he said to her, all right, it's unfair. I'm saying you have to lose the war, but lots of unfair things have been done to the Jewish people down through the millennia. And she said, well, uh, the, it, it, the reason we have a state of Israel is so that unfair things are no longer going to happen. At one point, he actually said to her, uh, if if war breaks out, because what happened was the Israelis surrounded the Egyptian Third Army in defiance of a UN Security Council resolution and in defiance- On the other side of the canal. just On the other side of the canal. So- Once Israel was starting to win, the entire international community mobilized to stop it. And Henry Kissinger flew to Moscow. And you got to understand, in the Cold War, ceasefire agreements typically took years to negotiate. Uh, This one took four hours. Um, The Arabs had an oil embargo. The shocking thing for me is that the Arabs imposed the embargo on October the 20th. Kissinger agreed to the ceasefire on October the 22nd. That was the moment when he held all the cards. From Moscow, he could have picked up the phone, called King Faisal in Saudi Arabia and said, hey, King, uh, you want me to rescue the Egyptian Third Army? OK, I want you to rescue American motorists. Lift the embargo. He didn't do that. Uh, to me, that's common sense. I've asked every person I could why he didn't do that. I tried to interview Dr. Kissinger himself. I asked twice. He declined both times. And, you know, he there's no reason why he would speak to a guy like me. He doesn't know who I am. Uh, The closest I got, well, I got two of his former aides told me on background that he just made a really bad mistake. And the only person who would go on record was Martin Indyk, the former US ambassador to Israel, who himself wrote a book called Master of the Game about Kissinger. Indyk is a very, very nice guy, by the way. He didn't really have a good answer. He just said, well, in those days, they figured the companies could fend for themselves. I mean, that's kind of a way of saying he made a really bad mistake. But anyway- Kissinger wanted Israel to get in and pull back. After the ceasefire was passed, Israel had only stopped two of the roads supplying the Egyptian Third Army. There was a third road. And obviously, if the third road was open, the Egyptian Third Army could still be supplied. And now the Israelis would be deep in Egypt, fighting from extended supply lines. Maybe they'd be the ones cut off. So Golda told her army, go ahead, keep going, defy the Security Council, defy the Americans, defy the Russians, we're winning the war. And they closed it off. It almost touched off World War III. America went to DEFCON three. The Soviets threatened to intervene. Uh, and you have to understand that in uh, the Cold War, no one thought that World War II was the model, that one country just brazenly attacks the other. Everyone was afraid of a World War One scenario where some regional war would trigger all these treaty obligations, and before you know it, everybody would be at war. And in gaming this out, all the military planners said that it's not going to be the Balkans, this time it'll be the Middle East. And it kind of almost happened. And Golden Bayer is sitting there, literally made out of galvanized steel, saying, I don't care, go fight World War III, I'm not going to lose a war. And Kissinger at one point said, if you don't pull back, we're not going to supply you anymore. You'll be fighting them all by yourself." And she said, well, you go march over and tell the Egyptians we're not going to budge. And then the Egyptians gave in. And that's how Israel won the Yom Kippur War. And if you ask me, Golda Meir belongs in that pantheon of world's greatest leaders like Winston Churchill and Abe Lincoln you know, for winning wars. Uh, Because if Israel had not won the Yom Kippur War, there'd be no peace treaties. Uh, Egypt would never have signed the Camp David Peace Treaty had it not been for the Yom Kippur War. And all of the other countries who have since signed, none of them would have gone first. I mean, that was part of the idea of of Arab-Israeli peace. For that to happen, someone had to go first. Someone had to break the ice. And a country like Jordan, a relatively small country, large Palestinian population, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, these are not countries that were going to go first. You had to have some country like Egypt go first. And again, Sadat would never have made peace had it not been for the fact that he lost the Yom Kippur War. Right. So I want to talk, we've been
1: talking a lot about the South. I want to talk, again, paralleling today, and I get shivers every time I think about your book and reading about it and everything. But we also had uh, Israel had the war in the North as well. Um, so you want to talk a
0: little bit about how that developed? Sure. So in the North, that was the really scary scenario for the Israelis. In the South, the Sinai Peninsula—it's about 120 miles wide. There was a huge buffer between the Egyptians and Israel's, you know, centers of population. That was not the case in the north. In the north, uh, you know, the uh, Golan Heights—I think—are only 27 miles wide at its widest, and it's as narrow as like 12 miles wide. So it's—it's it's nothing. It's only a little bit bigger than Westchester County, if you—if you know New York. Uh, it's really not very large at all. And the Syrians had this absolutely huge army that they brought right up. They also brought the surface-to-air missiles right up to the line because that way it could cover the entire Golan Heights. And they launched the surprise attack. Uh, it really was a scandal for Israel because the the it, the big listening post in Mount Hermon was almost completely undefended because the Israelis just didn't think the Syrians would attack it again. We go back to those the idea of the concepsia, the thinking was, since Mount Hermon could not be supplied by road, there were no roads leading to it from Syria. The Israelis figured they had no intention of trying to take it. Uh, you couldn't; the only way to supply it was either by donkey, which the Syrians attempted, or by helicopter. What the Israelis did was, the minute they heard the helicopter rotors, they would just start shelling it. So the Syrians couldn't really supply it. The Israelis did eventually take it back, but at really bad cost. Um, The war almost tipped one way or the other on the Golan Heights. Uh, It was one because, again, uh, Golda made one of those gutsy decisions. She had one reserve division left over. And the debate was, do you leave it to defend Jerusalem against a potential attack from Jordan, or do you send it up north? So Israel's military intelligence arm said there is no way Jordan is going to enter the war. But of course, they had just gotten the whole thing wrong. They had just said Egypt and Syria wouldn't go to war either. So do you rely on them or do you send them up north to beat back the Syrians? Golda, the generals, by the way, were split right down the middle. Golda threw the dice. She sent them up north. And that was the force that pushed back the Syrians. And it literally was, in some cases, the difference of a tank or two either way. Uh, One of the most famous battles in Israeli history is known as a a place called the, the Valley of Tears, where The Israelis literally ran out of ammunition, but they stood their ground anyway. There was one officer filled his pockets with grenades, um, and the Syrians gave in. And, you know, some of the great battles of history are decided because one side holds on one minute longer than the other. I mean, literally, just one minute longer. And uh, that's what happened on the Golan Heights, and that's why Israel won. Right, and you had a
1: great quote in there from Colonel Yadush Bengal. Uh, after the battle of the volunteers of the Syrian army and the Syrian nation are cruel by their nature, you must kill them or they will kill you without mercy, or hang on for that one more minute. So that's, I do want to mention one more personality just because again, it touched me and this is my interview. So um, okay. I want to mention or David Sedish um, because he's a nephew of the iconic yeah. Holocaust hero hana Senech. And I have to add here that today I just heard this beautiful interview discussion between a little girl who was in one of the kibbutzim on october 7th and a holocaust survivor um who herself was age 4 to 10 in a closet and just those parallels and then here you have or david uh senesh was the nephew of um Kana senesh who most people should know as a holocaust er- no. as- israeli who went back to um hungary and he wrote of his ga- captivity in egypt that what he endured was not cold ideological torture like the Nazis administered. It was driven by pure hatred. So let's talk a little bit, about three minutes, about the fight for existence and obliteration and the psychologically what was going on there, if you could.
0: Yeah. So there are a lot of these really sad stories. Uh, The Israeli POWs were all tortured. Uh, They all came back. Uh, some of them uh, missing toenails. Um, There was a guy named Amnon Sharon who was captured by the Syrians. The Egyptians were extremely cruel. The Syrians were unbelievably cruel. There was an Israeli pilot named Avi Lanier uh, who was beaten to death because he wouldn't give over secrets. Uh, One of Israel's truly great heroes. His son went on to become one of Israel's internet uh, multimillionaires. Um, I forget his first name. Uh, But yeah, uh, these are all just they're just tragically sad stories. And, you know, there was a story in the press recently that when he was still alive, there was a Polish president named Lech Kaczynski. He's one of those twin brothers and he died in a plane crash. But years ago, 20 some odd years ago, he traveled from Poland first to Beirut, then to London, and he met with Arab leaders. And then he went to Israel and he met with an Israeli official named Michal Kleiner. And he said, you know, I got to tell you, I'm Polish. I know what anti-Semitism is, but I got to tell you, you have no idea how much these guys hate you. He said, it is anti-Semitism on steroids. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And it's both scary and unsettling. And just the way that Palestinians talk today, it can only send chills. You know, you have this unbelievable butchery on October the 7th. And I have not watched the film. They put together this graphic film. I've seen it. I have, you actually saw it? Yeah. Okay. I haven't seen it, but I've heard, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that they're throwing live babies into ovens and turning them on and burning them. And Not in the ovens, but there are plenty of other disgusting things. Okay. I mean, things that are almost just unspeakable. The Nazis at least had the good sense to try to cover it up. These guys are posting it on social media. And, you know, the most reliable pollster, and, and and with a huge caveat, polling in the Palestinian community is very is a very dicey piece of business because yeah. you're going to be afraid to say things and, okay, fine. But putting that aside, the most reliable pollster is thought to be a guy named Khalil Shikaki, who, by the way, his brother, Fathi Shikaki, was the head of Islamic Jihad and was assassinated by the Israelis in Malta in 1995. But Khalil Shikaki is a pollster. He said that 82% of... West Bank Palestinians supported what happened on October the 7th. 82% and the other 18% were largely on the fence. It wasn't like 18, 18% opposed. It. it was like, you got to get down to low single digits before you go, I mean, maybe 4% or something like that that actually opposed it. And you know you couldn't get 82% of Americans to agree that the world is round instead of flat. I mean, But the idea that there's this broad consensus that genocide is just the way to go and you know, historically, the Palestinians have rejected every compromise proposed since 1922. And a lot of people don't know this. Um, all Jewish children are raised on the infamous white paper of 1939. When I was a kid, I thought the word infamous was part of the name. The <laughs> infamous White paper, okay? The white paper said in 1939, Britain saw it was about to go to war with Germany. They got scared. They, they needed to placate the Arabs. Obviously, the Jews had nowhere to go. So they sided completely with the Arabs. They said, forget about the Balfour Declaration. One state solution, there's only gonna be an Arab country, Palestine. Jews can't immigrate there any longer. They can't buy land there any longer. And that's the solution. And most people don't know this, the Palestinians turned that down. That was not good enough for them because the Mufti said, Khadja bin al-Husseini, he was then the head of the Palestinian community. He said, wait a minute. The white paper says that the Jews that are here Get to live here as a minority. We're not going to allow that. We're going to kill them all. We want to commit genocide. And then he went to Berlin. He spent World War II there. He sent his nephew on a fat-finding mission to all the death camps, looking at the gas chambers and all the other methods, you know, the cars where they piped in the the, the the carbon monoxide to kill people. Like, what's the most efficient way to murder hundreds of thousands of people? That's what we're dealing with. And most Palestinian intellectuals today will tell you, oh yeah, he did the right thing. You can't compromise. So we're dealing with a level of evil that really is almost unprecedented. And just to to round this out and conclude, with respect to Hamas, again, they're saying things like, we don't want to live, we just want to kill. Now, that is really scary when you think about it, because look at the worst killers of history, Hitler and Mao and Stalin. They were sociopaths. They felt no one's pain but their own. They would happily kill tens of millions of people, but they wanted to live. They didn't want to commit suicide. What does it mean for a world where you have an ideology where people say, we don't want to live, we just want to kill? What does it mean for a world in which Iran gets a bomb? Are they going to be deterrable, for lack of a better term, like a, a, a group of people that just say, or if Islamic Jihad gets a bomb, or ISIS, or Al Qaeda, uh, and they say, well, we don't mind sacrificing millions of people. We just want to kill you. This is an evil that, frankly, is unprecedented. And it's why the battle between Israel and Hamas is so much bigger than Israel and Gaza and why it's so important that Israel win it. And they aren't really just fighting for themselves. They really are, in many ways, fighting for civilization itself. Thank you. And of course, we've expanded
1: beyond way beyond your book. But I think it's so important, especially with the parallels that I encourage every uh, listener, right now, to go and read it because there is just so much in the book that we haven't been able to discuss, and so many uh, characters and understanding behind it. So, I thank you for that. And I thank you for this discussion. Um, it really is enlightening and hopefully it gives people food for thought and food for all other discussions as well. Um, we always like to ask if there's something new you're working on now. So,
0: oh boy. Uh, there is something new that I'm working on. Uh, it might end up being very controversial. It is about... This whole discussion has been controversial. It's good. All right, well, that's good. So let's go. Let's have at it. Um, <laughs> it is uh, it is about why progressives are so hostile to Israel and um, analyzing it. So if you ask most Jewish supporters of Israel, they'll say, oh, it's, well, it's, it's anti-Semitism or that other term. If they're Jewish, it's, oh, well, he's a self-hating Jew. No, that's not it at all. It is cognitive dissonance. It's because, um, well, let's engage in a thought experiment. I don't know how much time we have left, but- We have about two minutes, so- Okay. Thought experiment. Let's just say, every, nothing is more controversial than the settlements, right? Everybody hates the settlements. Okay. Let's assume every fact is exactly the way it happened. Let's just change one fact. Let's assume that in 1948, in defiance of the UN, and a lop, which passed the partition by a lopsided majority- the nation that invaded Israel was not the Palestinians, not the Jordanians, not Egypt. Let's assume it was Germany. Or let's assume it was, I don't know, Russia or Canada. In other words, let's assume they were white people, not people of color. So let's stick with Germany. Germany invades in '48. They kill all the Jews. Jews lived there for thousands of years. They changed the name to West Bank, but it's Germany. We'll call it Visbankenstadt. And now Germany is in an ethnically cleansed West Bankenstadt. They invade again in '67. The Jews win. And the very people who live there, it's only 19 years later, literally the same people who live there show up and say, I want my home back. The founder of the settlement was named Hanan Perak, in exactly that situation. You would not expect progressives to say, what are you talking about? You can't have your home back. It's Miss Bankenstadt. Germany invaded and they took it. But now that they're Palestinians, people of color fighting, not just white people, but Jews, who many progressives consider a group of privilege, you got the white group of privilege in one quarter, the people of color in the other, they're going to side with the people of color, which in most cases, by the way, in many cases, they're right. If we were talking about, you know, apartheid or the legacy of slavery, we'd find a lot of common ground, but the fact pattern is totally different. And then the cognitive dissonance kicks in when people have strongly held beliefs and facts contradict them. They change the facts, not the beliefs. That's why you have it. That's what the book is about.
1: Okay. So I already see a whole other lively conversation. I'm already going through it in my head. I'm excited to hear it. Thank you. And we're looking forward to that one as well. We enjoy being controversial on this channel so um we have been speaking with Ori kaufman about his book 18 days in october published and other things published by saint martin press in 2023 and has been a real pleasure thank you <laughs>